Hey, this morning we are going to be talking about family, and I know anytime we talk about family, that either means something really good to you, or that means something really bad to you. Um, Man, our family are our people. It is the people that we belong to. It is where we come from. But a lot of times, man, if we have a good experience with family, we can read in the Word, and we can kind of just like, all right, Jesus, I know what you're saying. But for others of us that did not have a family growing up, or maybe we just never got along with our family, um, we can read these scriptures, and we can really be like, man, uh, I, I just, I'm really having a hard time relating to what you are saying here, Jesus. And so, This morning, as we talk about family and what it means to be a part of the family of God, I really want to approach this with there's really two types of families that we can come from, okay? And that is one that is forged in the bonds of blood and one that's just forged in the bonds of an experience together. Um, A perfect example of a family that is forged in the bonds of blood that is relationship-based is from this movie right here called Lawless. Um, I couldn't actually tell you what their names are in the movie. I just know that's Shia LaBeouf. Uh, if you grew up on the Disney Channel, even Stevens, he's doing real good these days. Um, that's Tom Hardy. Um, I, I just know him as Bane from Batman. Um, and then uh, they have another brother. I don't know his name in real life or in the movie. But I do know that in the movie Lawless, there is nothing that these brothers won't do together. There's nothing that they won't do for each other. There's no amount of trouble that one can get into that the other brothers will not fight to the very ends of their life to try to rescue them from. You see, these brothers are uh, they're brothers in the Prohibition era, and that was a time, since we have kids in here, where we were not allowed to drink um, really spicy Kool-Aid, okay? And so they, uh, they are makers of very spicy Kool-Aid. They are moonshiners. They are bathtub gin makers, and they are selling um, all of their stock, all their supply to Al Capone, and things get a little bit hairy. They get into some situations. Shia LaBeouf needs to get bailed out because who, Tom Hardy needs to get bailed out? No, no movie ever does Tom Hardy need to get bailed out, except when Catwoman ran him over on Batman's bike, but that's different, okay? That was against Batman and Catwoman. Nobody's going to win that. So he needs to get bailed out, and so what happens is his brother come in and they save him. This is a family that has a bond of blood. They are related and they are in it through the thick of it with each other. Now there is another kind of family and this kind of family is forged in the bonds of experience together and that is no other than this family right here. I don't know if you've seen them before but we family, okay? This family right here lives life a quarter mile at a time. Um, they're really tight these days. I don't think any of them are related uh, whatsoever. I think maybe um, Vin Diesel's married to Michelle Rodriguez, but I'm also not really sure there either. I just know that they drive really fast cars. Um, this family is bonded so tight that they started off stealing DVDs from 18-wheelers, and now they are literally launching cars into space and then somehow landing them perfectly on our, all four tires on the ground and taking out just secret spy, CIA, espionage type stuff all over the world. Like, it makes 007 look like a joke. Um, and that's how good of a family they are. And, uh, and honestly, that's what I'm shooting for as a church right now, Okay. I want us to be that. I want us to all get really fast cars, and I want to go into space together. And then I want to come back down, and I want to take out all the bad guys with you. So two types of families. So today, we look at the family, but we look at the family through the eyes and through the lens of Jesus. Who was his family? And not just who was he related to, but who was his family really? Who wasn't 
his family, but in this moment thought they were, and spoiler alert, they actually were still his family. And how can we be his family? Now, before we dive into the sermon today, I want to go ahead and answer all of those questions in our main point this morning, which is really too long to be a main point and probably needs a few more comments. But our main point today is that we are not a part of God's family because of our physical relationships, but by faith in Jesus that leads to humble obedience. Say that again, and then you can get your nap on. We are not a part of God's family because of our physical relationships. It doesn't matter who we are related to, but by faith in Jesus that leads to humble obedience. Another way to put that is we are not family in blood, but we are family in spirit. We are not lawless. We are fast and the furious, and that is all through Jesus and aligning our lives to him to be obedient to him. We have a little bit of recap this morning, just like we did last week, except to recap this morning, we're going to go back 10 verses. Today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. We're going to go back to verse 21, where Jesus' family is leaving Nazareth, and they're leaving Nazareth to go to Capernaum to get in front of Jesus and say, hey, man, what's going on? I think you kind of need to chill out just a little bit. We know that Mary, Jesus' mom, absolutely believed in him. We know that she was not just his mother, but a disciple, a follower of Jesus. She knew that he was the Messiah that was to come, and she had the weight of raising him. And in that, we know that in the situation that Jesus is in, and having been doing all of these healings, all of these um, delivering demons and exercising them out of all of these people and all of these miracles that are starting to take place, people are just surrounding him all the time. And so she kind of goes a little bit mama bear. She wants to get in front of Jesus. She, what she probably wants to do is say, hey, um, I know that you are my son, but you're also God's son. And so it is my job to protect you. And so probably what she's trying to do is, is take him back to Nazareth with her. And then we see that Jesus' half-brothers, uh, they think he's absolutely lost it. And so whether you're married trying to protect the Son of God and that being out of a, a good heart, or if you're one of Jesus' half-brothers and you're kind of uh, jealous because your dad's just a carpenter and his dad's kind of the creator of the whole universe, and you're like, I don't know, we, we really need to slow this guy down a little bit. Um, Jesus, you need to just chill out. Here's a Gatorade. Drink some electrolytes. Let's take you back home. We got chicken noodle soup there. Everything's going to be good. They leave Nazareth, and now they are in Capernaum. And as they are in Capernaum, I've been saying this whole time, we've been in this book all 15 weeks now, that they're at Peter's house. Upon a little bit more study and a different commentary this week, turns out this might not have just been Peter's house. Actually, this might have just been a house that Peter was in. Turns out it's probably Peter's baby mama's mama's house, okay? That's Peter's mother-in-law's house is probably where they are stationed, but because Peter's the man, And, you know, he might have written a little bit of the Bible, and he was Jesus' right-hand man. We're just going to keep calling it Peter's house. But now you know, I know, we're good to go. What do we see in this scene? We see Jesus' mother. We see Jesus' brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, not the bad Judas, and his sisters. And this is is cool to me, too. We see this in a um, parallel account in Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 and 56. And we see that they are outside of the house. They're outside of the house. Remember, they're concerned about Jesus for whatever reason. What happens next? Probably something similar to what you would do to your kids if you were concerned about them. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. This is verse 31 through 33. 
And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered to them, Who are my mother and my brothers? All right, hold up, Jesus. What are we doing here? Parents. Grandparents. Anyone who's ever been around someone that was (laughs) insubordinate. (laughs) Think about what is happening here. Put yourself in this scenario. You are out with your family. You are out with someone that you might be concerned about. Maybe you've been put in charge of them. And you say, hey, it's time to go. You're not really sure where they're at, and so you send one of their friends to go get them. And their friend goes and gets them. They're a little closer than you think. And they say, hey, your mom, your brother, your dad, like everybody's waiting on you, and they're ready to leave this place. And then they said, who is my mom? Who is my dad? Who are my brothers? I'm going to keep playing because we're at the play place right now, and that's what I'm going to do. There's not many McDonald's around here with play places. I'm going to make the most of this time. Now, Jesus, Jesus is a full-grown man, okay? Jesus isn't hanging out at McDonald's. He's not a child at this point, but their concern is the same. There's no disciplinary action that is going to be taken on Jesus. He's not going to be grounded when he gets home by Mary. Uh, Jesus is in his 30s at this point. And so, what is Jesus doing here? Why did Jesus say that thing that could be considered hurtful? This is something that was a natural request, but Jesus' words are absolutely shocking. Jesus' words in a family-centered culture would have been something that grabbed everybody's attention. And as Jesus always does, that is exactly what he wants to do. Get everyone's attention, take a natural interruption, and turn it into an eternal lesson. What is that lesson? That lesson is that you are not in God's family just by who your parents are. You are not in God's family because of the blood that you share with somebody. You are not in God's family because of your parents' position in society, how they're doing at work, who they are in the community, the job that they hold. It does not matter what your parents believe. Your parents could believe in Jesus all day long, but we are not a part of the family of God based off of someone else's faith. And it doesn't even matter how much they believe it. It doesn't matter who you are related to. It does not matter who you are friends with. You can be related to a pastor. You can be friends with a pastor. That doesn't make you a part of God's family. That makes you friends with somebody who, hopefully if they're a pastor, is a part of God's family. I'm going to throw a couple of bonuses in here because I've seen these things throughout time in my life as I talk with people, as I share the gospel with people, and as I uh, lay out, hey, we are sinful people before them. And as sinful people, there is no way that we can stand before a holy God. There's no way that we could do anything but remain guilty. And as I try to share, like, hey, we are guilty people who have no chance at making it into heaven. And then I ask them, at the end of your life, do you think if you died today that you would make it to heaven? They always say yes. And they say yes for a couple of reasons. Um, This used to be really common in sharing the gospel with people, and that was that they thought they were going to heaven because they were part of a Christian nation. I would say it doesn't matter. You are not a part of the family of God based off of the location that you are born in. You are not a part of the family of God based off of, of what country your citizenship belongs to. And it doesn't matter where it is. We may not be as Christian of a nation as we once were, but there is still this idea that that we as a nation belong to God, and that is not enough to save us. It is not a choice of our nation. It is a choice of our own. Another bonus. 
And I've seen this a lot in ministry over the years, especially growing up in the student ministry and, and kids that, man, they're there every Sunday morning. They're there every Wednesday night. If there's an event there, there, it does not matter. You are not a part of the family of God just based off of the time that you spend in church. You're not a Christian just because you go to the church. You're not a car just because you spend time in your garage. You're not a cheeseburger and delicious crispy french fries just because you go to McDonald's. It doesn't matter your location. What matters is your decision. Your decision to put your faith in, believe in Jesus. And it doesn't even matter how big of a fan you are of Jesus. You can surround yourself by all the Christian music. You can surround yourself by all of the sermons and listen to all of them. You can sprinkle a little bit of Jesus and you can grow in your knowledge of Jesus and you can apply that to everything in your life. But none of those things bring you into the family of God. And so the question that we have to answer now is what brings me into the family of God? Thank goodness Jesus answers that for us. Verses 34 and 35 here in chapter 3. And looking about at those who sat around him, remember mom and brothers probably somewhere near the door, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Not pointing to them, but pointing to those around them. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. So how do we become a part of the family of God? It's not anything that we could do in our own accord but doing God's will. And doing God's will is laying down our own will before him so that we can become a part of what he is doing. And so what is doing God's will? Let's answer that. What is God's will is one part of the one question that we have to answer this morning. How do I get plugged into God's will is the second part of what we need to answer this morning. But when it comes to God's will, what we need to know as believers or people that are on the cusp of becoming believers is that God's will is incredibly simple, but it is also incredibly complex. God's will is very general and within his general will, we have his word, we have the Bible. That is why it is so crucial for us that we actually pick it up, that we actually open it, that we read it, that we spend time in it, that we know it, that we memorize it, that we apply its lessons to our lives. But it's not just his word. We don't get God's will without his word. It is his word, but it is also his commission. Before Jesus goes up and ascends into heaven, you see, he dies on the cross. On the third day, he rose again. He spent 40 days around various different people. Over 800 people saw him and witnessed him being resurrected from the dead, having victory over sin, over death, and over the enemy. And then he's around his disciples. And before he goes up, before he ascends into heaven, he gives them something called the Great Commission. And he says, go, therefore, make disciples baptizing them and teaching to obey all that I have commanded. So we have God's word, and then we get a little bit more specific, and then we have God's commission. And not only, only do we go about God's commission, but we go about God's commission in the lens of the great commandment and that we are called to love God and we are called to love his people. Now that's God's general will. Now that's, that's something that we can look to the Bible, we can open the Bible up and we can say, God, what is your will for my life? What is it that you want for me? And we can generally get an idea of that. 
And God's will will never go against his word. It will never go in opposition against anything that he has ever said. And so, um, man, if, if you feel like, God, I feel like you're calling me to go um, commit a crime. No, you, that's absolutely not God's will. God's not going to put that call on your life. That may be some kind of voice in your head. Maybe you ate a little too much pizza before bed that night. That's not the will of God. The will of God will never contradict his word, his commission, or his commandment. But there is a part of God's will that is more specific. And if I had a little bit more time this week, I would have found it, but I just remembered it on the way here. There was a German theologian that in the peak of, God, what are you calling me to do with my life? I found a quote from, and this German theologian said that God's will, God's specific will for you on your life is where your great passion and the world's great need intersects. It is where the person and the personality and the strengths and the weaknesses and the weaknesses made up by the Spirit that God has instilled within you take off and where they meet up with a great need of the world, where if you end up in that position, in that place that God calls you to specifically, man, lives are going to change. People are going to fall madly in love with Jesus because of the place in which you have obediently put yourself into and where he has called you to be. But that's not all of God's will. It is simple, it is complex, it is general, it is specific, but I want to go to the scripture here with you today. I want to kind of break this down a little bit more. 20 minutes is not enough time to really break down the entirety of God's will, so we will do the best with the time that we have left. God's will is our salvation. Right? This, is, this is the threshold. This is where we step into his will. John 6, 40. For this is the will of my Father, Jesus speaking, obviously, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is where it starts. But that word eternal life, that means that this is not where it ends. That means when we put our faith, when we believe in Jesus to save us, and the consequences of our sin from the wrath of God, that kicks something off in our life that goes far beyond anything that is just us. We get invited into a bigger story. It's no longer about us, but how we can cooperate with God to be a part of something much bigger. But it doesn't just end with our salvation. Okay, that is the beginning but it goes from salvation or justification to something called sanctification, which is a big fancy word we say in this church sometimes that means that you would just become more like Jesus. That's the point of this whole thing, that you would give your life to Jesus, that you would trust in him to save you, and that for the rest of your life that you would become more and more and more and more like him, that you would trend upward. That doesn't mean every day, man, I'm looking just like Jesus, and you live a Mr. Rogers uh, life for just the rest of your life. That's not how it is. You might have some Mr. Rogers kind of days. Then you might have some days where you just, people are like, I'm not sure if that dude ever heard of Jesus, okay? And then you go back up, and, and you are following the Lord and loving the, world, the Lord and loving the people around you, and then you go back down. But over the long haul, even if it's like this and it goes way down here over the long haul, it is that before you die to go be with God in your glorified state that you would be sanctified to become more like Jesus until you get there. We see 1 Thessalonians 4.3. It says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you would be more like Jesus, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, we can't leave that part out. That's way too fun to leave out, okay? 
you need to abstain from the sin in your life. How is it that I become more like a sinless Savior? Well, if I want to be more like a sinless Savior, that means I need to sin less. I need to die to my sin. I need to stop trying to manage my sin, thinking that I have control over it before it absolutely ruins and destroys everything in my life because sin is a choice that we choose. When we choose sin, we choose ourselves over the Lord. When we choose sin, we choose ourselves over surrender. And so we always have two choices. Am I going to choose sin? Am I going to um, deny the Spirit and His work in my life and Him calling me away from this? Am I going to ignore the way that God has provided away and out of this temptation? Or am I going to resist this temptation, do that enough, and then eventually the enemy will flee from you? And am I going to realize that, oh, I've actually been set free from this? Oh, this actually has no hold on me. Actually, when Jesus died, the chains were loosened, and I don't actually have to go back to this. I just choose to over and over and over. And it's not just sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is rampant in our culture today. We are sex-crazed people. Addiction to sexual things is off the charts. A lot of times in marriage counseling, it's not um, if there are addiction issues to sexual things, but it is the severity in which those things have actually um, made their way into your marriages. Paul addresses this sexual sin here because this really is what these Thessalonians are dealing with. But for us, this isn't just about that one thing saying that this is really bad. When God sees the weight of all sin is equal, that means that all sin is bad. That means that we need to die to all kinds of sin in our life. This is just what was more prevalent for their time. But Paul knows, as he's writing these Thessalonians, that, you know what, if you can see Jesus have victory over this sin that you are dealing with so, so much, then there is nothing. If Jesus can have victory over that, there is nothing that Jesus cannot have victory over in your life. So I don't know what that sin is for you. Maybe it's pride, maybe it's anger, maybe it's unforgiveness, who knows? Maybe it is sexual sin, but give it over to the Lord. And don't start at the smallest sin first, man. Go for that Mount Rushmore sin that you have been dealing with for so long. Hand it over to him, die to it, see him have victory over it. Next part of God's will. God's will is something that we live for. It is something that we give our lives over to wholeheartedly, all or nothing. And it is not our desires, but it is God's desires. 1 Peter 4, 2. So as to live for the rest of the time and the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. As believers, we are called to live wholeheartedly for the will of God. What that means for us is that God's will becomes our north star. It is what we navigate by. It means that with our renewed minds, that those renewed minds lead to renewed actions. It means that we aren't just thinking about God's will. We're not just trying to perceive God's will, but we are actually doing God's will, and that God's will becomes our purpose. It becomes our purpose to the point of everything we do in our lives is filtered through it. It means that Uh, Man, when it comes to that new job, God, would you have me go and work this job? God, I want to surrender to your will, and the best place to be in this life is right in the middle of it, and the worst place is to think that I'm in it, but I'm just outside of it, and I'm being fooled. 
God, would you have me um, take that job? Would you have me be around these people? Would you have me invest my money this way? Would you have me spend my money on the things that I'm spending my money on? God, would you have me spend my time on the things that I'm spending my time on? God, would you have me deal and steward the relationships in my life the way that I'm dealing with and stewarding the relationships in my life? But I want for myself, what I want for you is that at the end of our lives that we have zero regrets on how we spent our lives. Because we can look back and we, said, we can say, God, I've given you 100% of the best of me. There was a time, and I don't remember what sparked this conversation between me and Jacob, but we were going from, from one ministry thing uh, to the next, and we were spending time around uh, middle-aged men to some senior-aged men, and they were talking about the regrets that they had of their childhood, the regr- regrets that they had of the best days in their lives. And I remember looking across the truck, uh, gazing into Jacob's beautiful brown eyes, and I remember um, saying, hey, man, I don't ever want to regret the best years of my life being spent on anything but advancing the gospel and displaying the kingdom of heaven. He kind of looked at me and was like, you know what, man? I'm in for that. That's what I want my life to be about. I want the best years of my life. I want to look back on my life when I'm 75, and I want to say, man, I poured every ounce of blood, sweat, and tears that I could into what the will of God was in my life, that I wanted to see people come to know Jesus. I wanted to see them set free from their sin. I wanted to love them, and I wanted to love you, Lord, and I want to look back and say, you know what, man, we did that. And then me and Jacob in the retirement home in our rocking chairs will just fist bump as we drink our Arnold Palmers, and it will be a beautiful, beautiful moment. But I want the same for you. And I know some of you, the, the prime of your life has passed. And you're probably a little bit closer to Jesus um, than you have been before. And guess what? We're all a little bit closer than we were even a second ago. So many of you over the span of the life of this church have said, you know what? I went into that. I want to buy into that. I want the last years of my life to be something that I don't regret, but I want to lay everything on the table because God's will is something that I live for. And you have. And look at how God has used it. God's will is something that keeps us forever. Um, I was looking for a word last week. I think I said round, floaty thing. Um, The word I was looking for was life preserver. God's will is our life preserver. I think somebody up here said it. Thank you for that. 1 John 2.17, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Look, if we follow the world, if we do the things of this world, we will die. We will pass away with this world. But if we follow the Lord, if we follow God's will, then we will abide. That means we will be connected. We will remain with him forever, forever in his joy forever in his peace, forever in his fulfillment, in his truth, in his hope, in his life, from this life right on into the next. So now we have another question that we need to answer, and that is, now that I know what God's will is, how do I get plugged into God's will? And I'd say this is two parts. The first part is God's presence, right? This is the receiving of his will. We are 
invited into God's presence by the work of Jesus on the cross. Remember, God is holy. He can't be around sin. We are sinful. Jesus died on the cross. He took our sin. What we got was his righteousness. Boom, now we are considered holy. We can stand before a holy God because Jesus prepared a way for us. It was an incredibly unfair transaction, but it is out of God's great love that he did it. And we enter the presence of God, and we live before him, and we live in his kingdom. And once again, we submit our rule, and we submit our kingdoms to him. But this also means, now that we are in the presence of God, that we get to spend time with our king. This means that we get to know our king through his word. This means that we get to experience him in our living. This means that we get to get wrapped up in being with our king, not just doing for our king, but not just being with our king. It is a combined thing. This is, this is Reese's right here. This is the chocolate and the peanut butter put together into something beautiful. But to experience the presence of Jesus, it means that we have to prioritize it. We see that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That means we seek God first. It means we seek his presence first. Not second, not third, not fourth, certainly not last, not at the end of the day, not when things go wrong, not when we get in another fight with our spouse, not when our, our kids say that thing that just sends us over the, the edge for, for the tenth time. It's first. It's first. It's first. It's first. It's first across the board. And all these things, this presence of God will be added to you. So his presence should be a priority because his will is something that we need to discern. It is something that we must discern. Romans 12.2 says this, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. How do we discern the will of God in our lives? And I'm not talking about generally, all right, we've already worked through all the filters by now when we are talking about God's will for our lives. I'm talking about specifically. It is through the renewing of our minds. It is by coming into a right relationship with God and him taking our broken minds and our broken way of thinking and him completely transforming them to say, no, this is the way that you think now. And it is through my lenses and it is through these ways so that you are no longer thinking like the world, but so that you can test and discern the will of God. To test and discern means to make a critical examination to determine how genuine something is. There is going to be a lot of times in your life where an opportunity comes your way and it is gold-plated and it looks awesome on the outside, but then you just get like just a little bit beneath the surface and it is absolute garbage. It is trash because this is this, is this false counterfeit will of God that's been presented to you to get you to try to take it so that you can be thrown off of what God has for you. So we test it. We discern it. And when we put it to the test, it passes this threefold test of being good, of being acceptable, and of being pleasing. I want to I wanna clarify here that it is good, it is acceptable, and it is pleasing, but it is not always filled with peace I think about moving out here to Arizona. This it was this call that uh, Rachel and I felt that God was calling us to plant a church. Okay, sweet. You want to know how many churches I've planted in my life? Like half of one, and this is it. All right? We're, we're not there yet, but we're getting closer every day. It's terrifying. Man, I'm, I'm leaving family. I'm leaving friends. I'm leaving ministry and ministry connections and, and lives that have been changed, that God has done incredible things. I'm leaving all of that behind. 
And I'm saying, God, where is it? Where is it that you want us to go? And I have to, I have to discern this specific will of God for our lives. And I have no doubt that wherever we would have landed, God's grace would have been sufficient and he would have worked through it. But man, like we had the entire United States to figure out where does a church need to be. And so we're looking at all these different places and all the different contexts we've come from and, and where we might be able to do ministry best. And we're trying to make humanly sense of, of uh, everything because this is terrifying, we're leaving everything for the first time. And then said, hey, you know what? Like we have to actually pray about this. And then we prayed about it and we started seeing God move in some different ways. And, and you know, you always, as a, as a pastor, you talk about prayer, and sometimes you talk about fasting, and it depends on how Baptist you are on whether you actually want to fast or not, or if you can actually say no to food or not. And I decided I want to be a little bit less Baptist today. And so I said, you know what, Jesus? For your specific will in my life, it is going to be far worth are worth far more to, to say no to this meal, to say no to that meal, to say no to this meal, if it means me aligning myself perfectly to you. We see Jesus do this all the time, always operating perfectly out of the will of the Father. And so we said, I said no to food for a day, and then another day, and then another day, and then I never got past four days, all right? Like eventually, I realized I am still Baptist at the core, and I got really, really hungry. But at every turn, of having to figure out, God, where, what is it you want us to do? How do you want us to do it? Where do you want this church to be? It took more submission of ourselves. It took more prayer. It took more hiding and pressing into Jesus. Because, God, I have absolutely no idea. But every step of the way, he gave me just a little bit more. And it was never, hey, here's the full plan, bucko, go get him. Because you do that for a person like me, I'm going to go about your will, and I'm never going to look back and actually have a relationship with you as I go and do it. So it was breadcrumbs every step of the way. God revealed himself. But it wasn't just God's revealing himself. We then had to do it, which is part two, and which is where we'll close today. Part two of God's specific will in our lives is obedience. It is aligning to what he is calling us to do, and then it is actually going out and doing it. It is discerning, and then it is doing. Luke 8, 21. This is another parallel account in the Gospel of Luke to the scripture we're reading today. Luke records it like this. When they were asking for Jesus in Luke 21, but he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those that hear the word of God and then go do it. Kent Hughes a theologian and pastor, says this, obedience does not originate a relationship with God. Faith does that. But obedience is a sign of it. There's an expectation that we would hear God's word, that we would receive God's will, that we would seek after it, that we would discern it, and then that we would go and do it. He continues saying this, this new family relationship is far superior, far stronger, far more satisfying, far more demanding, and far more dear than any human relationship that is marked by unshakable grace. And those who receive such grace are marked by humble obedience. So that means that we, in humble obedience, live by his ways in our lives. This means that we follow his principles, that we live for his mission, that we say, not my way, but your way. Not my will be done, but your will be done. Tim Keller says this, 
A child in a family obeys not in order to be loved and accepted. And hear this, hear this, hear this, hear this this morning, especially if you are one of our awesome people that comes from a Catholic background, if you are one of our awesome people that comes from a works-based background, you do not work to earn your salvation. Jesus earned your salvation for you. And so you put your trust and your faith in him, and you receive salvation through his work, not by anything you could ever do, but everything that he did. A child in a family obeys not in order to be loved and accepted, but because he already is loved and accepted. This means that we've been loved. We have been accepted. So what now? We've heard it. Now we've got to go do it. Let's be the church. Let's display the kingdom by doing these things this week. Let's put our faith in Jesus. Some of you maybe for the first time, some of you may be just a, Jesus, I, I still believe. Jesus, your will has been unclear, and I feel lost and confused out here. But I know that you are good, and I know that you are in control. I still believe. Put your faith in Jesus. Be adopted into God's family. Pursue God's will. Seek out what he wants you to do. Not what you want you to do. And then go and do God's will. Display what family you are a part of in humble obedience. Let's pray.